Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Feels like we've been dealing with the coronavirus pandemic for years now. But it was just a few months ago when states first began shutting everything down to combat the virus. And then just a few weeks after that when states began reopening things. So where are we now? Cases are higher than they've ever been in Alabama, and so are deaths. We now have a statewide mask order. Some vaccinations are beginning human trial. But when will we see those publicly available? Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are speaking with Dr. Jean Marazzo, the Director of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. She's on the front lines of the battle against the virus and walks us through what we know now that we didn't know in March, what activities we should and should not feel comfortable doing right now, some of the biggest myths about the virus, and the earliest possible hope for a vaccine. So listen up. This is an important topic on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Dr. Marazzo, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. It's uh, such a pleasure to finally get to talk with you, John. As we are speaking, Governor K.I.V. is announcing a statewide mask ordinance for Alabama. What does that mean in terms of where we are in the process of fighting the COVID pandemic? And what does it mean for us down the road? Right. So great question. I think that most people would agree that the governor issuing the statewide mandate is a belated but welcome acknowledgement that we are not winning this fight against COVID-19. Like many other states, and we'll probably want to get into a little bit of the data, not to nerd out completely, but you know, Alabama is seeing alarming escalation of a couple of trends, not just the number of new cases, which we were expecting on the basis of what we've been seeing throughout mid to late June and into early July, but unfortunately also in deaths. So I'm sure you saw yesterday that we had a record number of deaths in Alabama. 40 people lost their lives yesterday to COVID. And on average in the state right now, we are looking at about 15 people uh, dying every day from this infection. And I think that sometimes those become statistics when what it really means is that people who are in our communities are losing their lives and their families and friends are losing them. So not only increases in cases, not only increases in the percent of cases that are positive, and we can come back to talk about some of those measures if you think it would be helpful for the audience, Right now, we're running on a statewide basis around 15% positivity over the last seven days, 16%, and over the last 14 days, 12%. So again, this concept of just because you're testing more, we're getting more positives, that is true, but we're also getting more high positivity, which means we're detecting more infections that are truly out there. What would be an encouraging number in terms of 
positive testing rate. 15 sounds high. What's, a, what's an encouraging It is very high. It's very high. So if you look at a place like Seattle and the King County area, when they reported, of course, the very first community-wide outbreak in the States, they were initially around 8 to 10%. And when things looked really good there about two months ago, they got it down to less than 2%. And at one point, I think it was 1.4%. So that's when people start to say, that's pretty great. If you can get it down below 2%, that would be really remarkable. Certainly, double digits are not where we want to be. So if I'm understanding you correctly, Alabama's positive testing rate is currently roughly 1.5 or double the size of, of what Seattle's was when Seattle shut everything down back in February and March. Yes, yes, yes. These positivity rates are really high. And if we had seen these when we were talking about this in the spring, you know, I don't, I don't know that anybody would have even thought about reopening. So this is clearly all, I think, uh, I don't think anybody's really arguing now that this is a consequence of the widespread reopening throughout the state and throughout much of the country, frankly, around Memorial Day. So the timing continues to be really good to support that hypothesis. And are we starting to see a spike in cases that may have resulted from the 4th of July holiday, or is it still premature to guess that? It's hard to say. That was only about a week ago. And if you think about the incubation period for this virus, we think it's probably between four to seven days, maybe a little longer in some people. And then if you think about when people start to escalate their symptoms during the progress of their disease, it's likely that you would expect to see an increase in cases about 10 to 14 days. Because the only cases that we're really going to see um, in our statistics are the people who are sick enough to go and get tested, right? Or who are sick enough to, you know, so, so that's going to weed out a bunch of people who may be either less symptomatic or completely asymptomatic. So I would say I'm not optimistic about the next week. And hospitalization rates are also rapidly climbing in Alabama and, and throughout much of the Southeast and the country for that matter. How worried are you about Alabama's hospitals being overrun? I'm very worried right now. So yesterday, there were 168 new hospitalizations, um, people hospitalized in the state. We're not a huge state. We don't have a huge number of hospitals, particularly in the most hard hit uh, black belt areas in particular of the state, right? That's why Montgomery um, Tuscaloosa are struggling particularly with hospital and ICU capacity. I'm really worried about it. I think that right now hospitals are handling it, but you know, earlier this week, I, I heard that Huntsville Hospital had 111 patients with COVID while UAB had 85. We're a considerably bigger hospital than Huntsville and you know, everybody's managing but I would say we are getting close to the razor's edge of uh, mostly capacity, not just beds. And I, I really wish people would remember it takes healthcare workers in force to take care of patients with COVID. So remember about 20 to 25% of people who are sick enough to come into the hospital with COVID infection end up going into the intensive care unit and a fair proportion of those, maybe about half, end up requiring mechanical ventilation or uh, being intubated on a ventilator. Those people, particularly if you want to give them the state-of-the-art care, which requires proning or moving them around pretty frequently, they require very high level of skilled nursing care one-on-one. -on -one. And so our healthcare workforce is not 
inexhaustible. It's a really intensive physical ask. And it's also a big emotional ask because you're having people in the trenches, being exposed every day. Remember, patients can't see family and they can't see friends because of the rules of trying to keep everybody safe. So the emotional burden on care providers in those settings is huge. So we're really worried about that. And we're, you know, we're hiring new nurses. I know at UAB we are. We are certainly hiring people who are coming in from other places. So when people talk about bed capacity, ventilator capacity, obviously that's critical, but if you don't have enough skilled people who are not exhausted and not completely demoralized to take care of patients, then you're going to be in double jeopardy. Well, and when things were spiking, you know, just in New York City, I mean, I know that they were on the rise in other parts of the country as well, but primarily in New York City and Seattle, my understanding is you know, doctors and nurses and, and other care providers from around the country kind of went there to help out. When things are surging all around the country, it seems like it's less feasible for doctors to go to where the problem is because the problem is everywhere. Is that fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. And it's also hard to leave your own home when either they're experiencing, you know, a similar problem or there's a threat of them experiencing a similar problem. I think one other important corollary of that comment is that the widespread increases in transmission and, and in cases occurring remind us that you know no place is really safe yet. So Washington State is seeing increases, especially in the eastern part of the state. You know, New Jersey's seeing some increases, and certainly California, which looked like it had at least stabilized enough to talk about reopening, is now definitely exploding. I mean, I, I just heard from a friend in Los Angeles that they had 4,000 new cases there yesterday. So it comes back to this concept of nowhere is really, truly safe because we still don't really understand enough about how people ultimately will be protected from infection with this virus, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's because they've gotten infected before, or whether there's some other thing we can do to protect them. So it's really very worrisome. Well, speaking of vaccine, there was some encouraging news out this week, I guess. There was a report Tuesday that showed some promise for a vaccine that's being developed by Moderna. I know there's a number of vaccines that are currently in the works. I believe this one showed positive vaccination in 45 people. If we are on kind of the human trial stage now for some of these potential vaccines, you know, how many months out are we best case scenario from a publicly accessible vaccination? Right. So the phase one study that was reported in New England Journal, what a phase one study is for people who don't know, and the reason they should, is really a first in humans safety study. And that's why it includes such a small number of people, only 45 people. And you want to enroll very healthy people who are going to be very unlikely to experience any consequences of the vaccine. And that's really super important because the first time you're putting anything into anybody is, is a huge risk. And I want to call out the people who participate in vaccine trials. To me, they are true public health heroes. I mean, these are people who, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And, and they went ahead and stepped forward. And we have a lot of gratitude that's owed to them. So anyway, phase one study, and it's called open label trial, meaning everybody knew that they were going to get a vaccine. It's a dose escalation trial, meaning when you first start, you really don't have other than what you know from data in animals, what the appropriate dosing is. So they give a small group, uh, 15 people, each of three different 
gradually escalating doses. And that tries to give you a sense of how safe and well-tolerated the vaccine is and what the immune response is to each of those doses. So incredibly well done, safely done. This is a network actually that I'm involved with. So it's exciting to see this come out so quickly. And what it looked like was that the people in the highest dose group actually, after a second vaccination, really produced good levels of what looked like the right kind of antibody. And when I say the right kind of antibody, I want to remind people because there's nothing harder for most people, including me, to understand than immunology. Immunology is incredibly complicated. Remember the visual of the coronavirus, right? It's that ball with all those spikes coming out and you've seen toys of it and models of it. So antibodies, remember, are formed to every single part of that surface. So it's not just a single antibody that gets made to anything your immune system responds to. Everybody makes sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of antibodies, even to a single virus like that, because they all have very small surface components that your body's capable of reacting to. So it's not just a matter of making antibody to the virus, it's a matter of making the right antibody. And that means the antibody that's going to be able to take the virus out before it infects you. So it has to be able to bind to the right part of the virus. It has to be able to bind very closely and it has to be able to have a sustained enough effect on that virus to really take it out. So what we think is the target that is the most appropriate for that job is the spike protein. And that's that spiky thing that comes out that you can see out of the virus. There's a part of it that seems to be the most important. And so when they looked at the kinds of antibodies that would confer what we called neutralizing antibody, which means it neutralizes the virus, it takes it out, again, in the lab. So remember, people get the vaccine, we get their serum and their cells after they get it, and then we go back to the lab and test what they've made against the virus. That's how we do it. We don't expose people at this stage to the virus ever. You know, we really don't do anything that is is not super safe. So bottom line, I think that this is very, very cautiously good information. What's really critical is your second question. What is the timeline? So I emphasize phase one. So one incredible thing I think people should realize is, you know, we are sitting here six months after really finding out more about this virus than we knew and hearing about its genetic sequence, right? Seven months after hearing about the outbreak in Wuhan. And we have a phase one study in the New England Journal, which is truly unprecedented. There has never been any pace like this in my experience in medicine for an infectious disease. So that's pretty remarkable. But the caveat is that you now have to escalate this to a phase two or a phase three study. That's when you start to bring the vaccine into larger groups of people, include people ideally who are at significant risk from getting the infection. So for us, that means a lot of our vulnerable populations and it means a lot of older people since we know age is the principal determinant really of mortality from the And this is all voluntary, obviously. All voluntary. Absolutely. And that's a fundamental part of what we do in terms of human subjects. And for people who are interested in clinical research, that is a huge area because participation in research, there's many, many regulations, many ethical issues about this. And I mean, when we sit down to consent a patient for these studies, 
it is not a trivial conversation because you're going often, I don't know how long the consent was. You actually have to go through a consent form and sign it. It would be interesting. I'm sure we could look at it, but I, I wager that the consent form for this was probably 20 pages. Wow. And you're going to go through it with the person. And that's a guess, but based on consent forms I've seen for other studies that are similar, you're going to go through it. You're going to really answer everybody's questions. So imagine now going to a phase three, we are actually skipping phase two for this vaccine. Phase two normally would be like a 500 to 800 person trial where you start to expose people to the vaccine and a placebo, right? The placebo being a non-active comparator. So, and nobody knows what you get. The person who injects you doesn't know, the participant doesn't know. And then you follow people out and you see, was it safe? And what kind of immune markers that I talked about before did it generate, right? This is so urgent that we can't even afford to plan a 500 to 800 person trial. We are planning at the end of July, and I really think it's going to start next week. I'm not totally sure. There's been all kinds of crazy discussions between the NIH and Moderna, and it's just a huge, as you can imagine, the warp speed kind of effort. We are planning to enroll 30,000 people um, in a phase three study, yeah, of the Moderna vaccine, probably starting next week. And that will happen globally. And what it will probably, I have not seen the protocol, although the protocol is the kind of roadmap for how you do the study. So it has all the instructions and it's everybody goes by the same book because it's incredibly important that everybody does everything the same way. There'll probably be hundreds of sites because we're going to want to do this globally. And so that is the next step. And then that will be a randomized study where people are enrolled. They know they have an equal chance of getting the Moderna vaccine or a placebo. And then you follow them forward and you see what happens. Now, question people have is, are you going to be able to see if it works? in real world time in terms of getting COVID, or is it just going to be another immune marker study? With that many people, with this much transmission, we should be able to get a signal of whether or not it's efficacious. And that is the goal. So now you're going to say, well, when is that? Well, you can imagine that enrolling 30,000 people in a study like this And how long are you going to follow them? My sense is that you're going to have to follow people for a year, at least. Although, again, if people are getting exposed, things may happen faster. And, you know, you're going to be looking at the data periodically. So maybe they'll stop the study early if it looks good. But let's say we start at the end of July. And let's say by some miracle, we enroll at least half of the group by the end of the year. Part of it's going to depend on how enthusiastic people are going to be. I would be first in line, I will say, because I I think it's, we we can talk about the herd immunity idea later, but that's a non-starter as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) So best case scenario, maybe you get a bunch of people enrolled by the end of this year, you follow them into next year, and maybe, maybe you can get a signal slash answer that is definitive or at least strong enough that you can say, let's move this out wider by the fall or winter of next year. So we're easily looking at late 21. Absolutely. Yes. When that does happen, how will they prioritize, I guess, who gets the first round of vaccines? You know, I mean, I can't imagine that they can suddenly vaccinate billions of people at once. So that is a fantastic question. And I've been talking with somebody about this because we've been trying to think about writing something about this. I mean, 
you can look at it a couple of different ways. And part of it will depend on what the data show. So older people who are vaccinated with some vaccines do not mount as good a response. So if you're a 20-year-old who gets immunized for, let's say, hepatitis B, you're probably going to do better in terms of the level of protection than an 80-year-old. And that's true just generally because your immune system, unfortunately, ages like the rest of your body Mm -hmm. and isn't as robust. So maybe we find that the Moderna vaccine, this is totally theoretical, works best in people under 40. Maybe then what you want to do is target healthcare workers who might be in the age range that's most likely to benefit. Now, that doesn't mean we would abandon something to try to give people above 40, again, in this hypothetical scenario, maybe partial protection would be worth doing if we did not have another option. The thing about the vaccine landscape right now, and you probably have heard, is that there are five vaccines candidates that the Warp Speed project is moving forward. So all of these vaccines are going to be tested in parallel. So there will be more than just the Moderna study. There's an AstraZeneca study, which is what we'll be participating in at UAB. We'll be enrolling people in that study. And we think that might start sometime toward the middle or end of August. Really looking forward to that. There is the Novartis study, and then there are a couple more. So again, we need a lot of horses in the race because we don't know how they're going to perform in different populations. And and they're all slightly different. They're either different in their method, the targets, or how they're made. So there may be different ones that do better with different populations. I would say you want to protect your most vulnerable populations and you want to protect people so you can maintain a good healthcare workforce. I also worry a lot about pregnant women. I worry about kids. You know, kids seem to have escaped most of the bad stuff but you want to think about getting kids protected so they they don't transmit to people. Pregnant women, we thought at first, also were going to escape some of the bad side effects, but it looks like, based on a CDC report a couple of weeks ago, that they do worse if they have COVID than pregnant women without COVID. So we really need to think about scaling up studies in them. In the big study of 30,000 people, They aren't going to include pregnant women, but they know women are going to get pregnant during the study. And so they will have a registry to follow them, which I think will be really good. So long answer, but complicated landscape. Coming up after the break, Dr. Marazzo and I discuss whether it's a good idea to return to schools. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, These are the stories of the people seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. I've been doing this 40 years. I bet I've fired five people in my entire life. And, you know, we're in the process of laying off hundreds of people. And I can tell you that's as tough as anything we've ever done. A lot of us don't have health insurance. A lot of us don't have sick days. You can't collect unemployment when shows cancel. Everyone is worried. Everyone is tense. Everyone is concerned. I have a business that I cannot even run. For two months now, I've been closed. I have five employees. They keep asking me when we're going to reopen, and I don't know yet. I'm an optimistic guy, and and I think that my group is smart enough and hardworking enough and kind enough to get us through this, whatever they throw at us. And, And that's certainly my hope. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a Pandemic. 
Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It sounds like, regardless, best case scenario, we're looking at a year plus before there's a publicly available vaccine. So that, I guess, raises the more pressing questions of how do we learn to live with this for at least another year? And a lot of the questions that I think people have right now are about whether or not schools can safely be reopened, whether or not fall sports can safely move forward. You know, when things like entertainment venues and conferences and things like that, it seems like in Alabama, parts of the South, most of the country, we have made the decision that we are not going to stay under lockdown like some other nations have done. So safely, what would you be willing to do? And from a policy standpoint, what's the best way to handle, let's say, let's start with schools and then and then talk about sports? Sure. So one important point is I do think people can be together safely. It just depends on a couple of things. One is probably the most important determinant is the rate of background community transmission. So there's a point where you really probably can't safely have anybody get together. Um, remember, that's what we were concerned about in March. And that's why everything shut down. That's why everything shut down in Italy, Seattle, et cetera. And that clearly worked. It clearly worked in other countries. I think the challenge here is we just did not continue it long enough. So the question then becomes, what is that rate of transmission? Is it so bad right now that we should not even think about opening schools? I think it depends. We know, again, that younger kids, let's just start with grade school do not by and large suffer from the kinds of COVID problem that let's just say adults do, right? So is there a way that you can bring young kids back to school, make sure that they are not infected, make sure their families aren't infected, which is another issue and a question to raise, and make sure that the teachers and staff are not infected. And if that's the case, can you create a relatively COVID-free environment so that they can go back to school? Because you're balancing the sustained psychological and developmental damage of keeping kids out of school for a prolonged period. There's that, and there's also the damage to parents who have to figure out how to care for these kids and juggle their careers and their job demands. I mean, it is so multidimensional that to say there's no simple answer is really an understatement. So I think, you know, and everybody's safety, you got to think about everybody's safety, including teachers. So I think that for schools to reopen, you, you really would like to see the community transmission rate stabilizing, and we are not there, we're going in the wrong direction, or you would like to see a controlled setting where you can really be as confident as possible that the kids aren't symptomatic, that their families aren't symptomatic, the teachers, staff are screened with symptoms and certainly tested if there's any concern and also don't have recent exposures. So there's a whole checklist that you would need to do. I think it's feasible, but it becomes increasingly likely to fail as soon as you have like very high levels of community transmission like we do now. So I think we can try it, but I think 
what I worry about happening is that you're going to have these successive shutdowns. So you're going to try to go back. It's kind of like restaurants reopening. A lot of restaurants tried to reopen and then you'd have an employee test positive and then they'd have to shut down. That's the situation that I, I would like to avoid, but it may be the only way we can start to get to a new normal. I should mention that several people, including CDC and other educational organizations, have looked at different models where you would combine bringing kids in and keeping them at home. So you would do like a staggered attendance. They would come in for one day, be home for one day, come back for one day. And that that way you reduce their mixing by about 50%. That actually probably would work. Or you have like a three and four day week where you come in for a few days and then you have four days off. And what that does is concentrate the opportunity for cases to occur if they're going to happen. So it's easier to identify when they happen and what the source is. A lot of this opening depends on whether you can do contact tracing and isolation, which we haven't really talked about, but people have been talking about a lot. I keep reminding people that only works when you have like isolated outbreaks. Like where there is no way we can do contact tracing right now, we are inundated trying to take care of the people who are positive. I mean, for every person who's positive, there's dozens of contacts. Contrast that with a situation where like you have a school and then there's a positive case and that student, you know exactly when they were there, you know the family, you know the classroom, like you can actually work with that. So again, depends on the size of the school, the resources, the community transmission, the involvement of the parents, the community, and the confidence level of staff. So again, it's really complicated. I think it can be done, but you know, it's late. It's mid-July. Right. Do you have the confidence that we have a plan in place for it to be done safely? I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned. And there's been, you know, I mean, CDC has developed some guidance, which I think is very helpful. But then, of course, that was undermined recently by the federal government last week, which is kind of unfathomable. So I think it's going to require intensive conversations and a lot of individual-based decisions. You probably saw that last week that Los Angeles and San Diego decided against it. I think the tricky, even trickier, is college-age kids because, you know, we've developed a plan, as have many universities, for some sentinel testing, for symptom screening, for screening people when they come back. Again, the challenge there is going to be, you know, can you have a classroom where you've got six feet distance? Can you do a mix of online versus in-person? I think it's going to take all kinds of experiments. And I mean, the good thing about younger people is that the experiments are unlikely to result in really bad outcomes because, I mean, I don't want to see them get infected, but it's not like exposing a 90-year-old. But a university of the size of UAB or or University of Alabama, I mean, they have, you know, thousands of faculty and staff who are obviously not college-age. Exactly. That's the other dimension. So if I was a 65-year-old professor... Would I want to go in to teach to a class of 100 people in an auditorium? No, not without appropriate precautions. Now, we didn't talk about masks, right? So let's say you have an auditorium that seats 100 people. That would be a small auditorium. Could you do it with a reduced class size and masks and maybe face shields? So the professor could wear a face shield so she or he could actually you know, be seen talking. I think that is not unreasonable at all. Because face shields, we know, are certainly combined with masks are great uh, because you can you can protect your eyes and you can also protect your respiratory tract. But, you know, in the setting where you're going to be up in front of a room 20 feet away from people, it's probably okay to do it. 
Do you need to do that instead of Zoom? Do you need to do that instead of, you know, doing it online? I don't know, but I really worry about prolonged social isolation for all of these groups. What about football? <laughs> the concept of being in a stadium with what is the stadium capacity? 50,000 people? Oh, University of Alabama is 100,000. So, yeah. The 100,000. <laughs> yes, right. The concept of being in a stadium with 100,000 people screaming uh, and unmasked is, is a ground zero scenario to me. And I'm comfortable saying that I love football. I'm from Pennsylvania, as you mentioned. I mean, you know, Friday Night Lights kind of thing. But I really at this point, cannot imagine gathering that many people in a single place. Now, could you do it with masks? Maybe. You're still pretty much on top of each other. Could you do it with masks and maybe have every third seat occupied? That's not totally crazy. You know, it wouldn't be the same. And I don't think that Coach Saban would be very happy about that. He didn't <laughs> like to see any empty seats, right? But that might be something to think about. I don't know what the current conversations are about that. I, I have no inside track information, but but I don't honestly see how with this level of positivity right now in the state, we could have business as usual. Could we have an altered model of football? Again, whatever we do is going to be a risk, right? The only no risk situation right now is to stay home. <laughs> and so everybody has to be comfortable that that everything's an experiment and we're all participating in an experiment right now. And it's nobody's fault. I mean, all we can do is, is do our best and go by the best data we have. And, and that's where I get, you know, I, I really wish that the discourse around this had been more respectful and civil all along because, you know, everybody's really scared. We really don't know what we're dealing with and we're doing the best we can. You mentioned the Department of Education kind of undermining the CDC guidelines with regards to returning to schools. It was also announced this week that coronavirus data is now going to be redirected to the White House rather than the CDC. What does that mean in terms of us being able to get reliable information on how to proceed as states, as cities, as private citizens? Right. So this news just came out last night and I just literally saw the guidance and I haven't had a chance to go through it. It's about a 12 page memo. But what I understand is exactly as you said, the CDC has a national hospital safety surveillance mechanism, reporting mechanism that they've had in place for some time, at least several years. And my understanding is that what usually goes into that system are bed availability, ventilator availability, all the kinds of things that I mean, we're actually set up for exactly this issue, right? The pandemic issue, because this is the stuff of nightmares, but they're nightmares that we've all had in our brains. So my understanding is that it is now being routed away from CDC into the White House. What the purpose of that would be, I don't understand. The most positive interpretation I could have is that the CDC has its hands full right now with the general coronavirus data, with coming up with all the recommendations that we really rely on them for, for communicating about COVID, and that maybe there needs to be some more close involvement of other federal agencies that it's easier for the White House to coordinate. That would be a very, very Pollyanna uh, view. <laughs> now, Dr. Burks, Dr. Deborah Burks, who is in charge, right, nominally at the White House, I don't really know. We haven't really seen her very much in there haven't been coronavirus task force briefings. She is a CDC veteran. She knows the CDC very well. She has run the PEPFAR program for years now, which is the program that distributes HIV medications globally. And she runs a very tight ship there. So she knows what she's doing. So I think what we need to find out there is 
you know, what was the rationale? What is the consequence going to be to either refine the ability of the administration to help us with the resource challenge? And is it going to further marginalize CDC? Because I think if this, two things, if this didn't come out like a bomb, which these things just happen and you're like, what the heck? And then the other thing is if it didn't come on the tail of incredible concern about the CDC being marginalized and attacked around what has been happening, then we wouldn't be so freaked out. Right. You're referring, I think, to the public discrediting of Dr. Fauci by the White House. Well, well, Dr. Fauci is NIH. It's the same game plan, right? These people are public servants and have been doing this for their entire, I mean, you know, we work very closely with people at the CDC and I know many of them personally from Ann Shuckett to Nancy Masonier. And I mean, they are career public servants who I can't imagine having anybody I would rather have in charge right now of doing what, what needs to be done. So when I say they were sidelined, I mean, basically, you know, we have not seen anybody except Dr. Redfield on the stage since the beginning of all this started. And, and he's been pretty quiet. He certainly hasn't been in the forefront. And then, you know, I think that discrediting Dr. Fauci is another level entirely. I mean, that, that's completely unbelievable to me, actually. So, and it's hard to see what the purpose of that would be. Again, remember, one thing I would love to point out really briefly is that there have been a lot of statements about, well, why even directed to people like Dr. Sag, who I work with, you know, well, then why, if you're so sure masks work, well, why did you say they didn't matter very much in March? Well, again, you know, if we knew exactly what to say in March or January or February, that would be like a baby being born and being able to speak English. I mean, we really, we knew so little about this virus. Again, we have been just sort of dancing as fast as we can, reacting to a deluge of information. And if you, I was doing daily updates for my faculty and then weekly updates. And now it's just like, I've practically given up because I can't keep track of all the stuff that's being published. So, you know, you can say, well, yeah, you didn't get that right. But boy, there are a lot of reasons that we didn't get things right in March. So yeah, so that's some of my concern with this new directive about the data. And then I guess the last thing is that trust and transparency are critical in times of crisis. And when there are efforts to change the way data flows, I mean, data is a religion for scientists, right? Nobody messes with your data because that is the truth. And I think that, you know, whenever you feel like there is rerouting or handling or restriction of data, you know, especially in this environment, you're just like, wait a minute, this is making me very nervous. So I think that's the reaction. And, and, and again, we need to find out more what that means, because I truly, literally, everybody was, <laughs> you know, tweeting this morning about this and freaking out. You know, this won't be the only pandemic we face, presumably, in Alabama and in United States. What have we learned about Alabama's healthcare structure that we should better prepare for future pandemics and to handle this current outbreak? I would say that overall, I could not be more proud of the people who've been involved statewide. I mean, the hospital systems, the folks who run the Al Don Williamson at the Alabama Hospital Association, Scott Harris. I mean, people have pulled together in a way that has been astonishing. So one thing I would just 
use a shout out to is that we have an incredible alumni of people from various institutions around the state who just stay in touch and, you know, can contact each other at the drop of a hat. And so communication among the hospitals and the healthcare facilities has been really good. So I think that's something we need to continue to nurture and not every state has that. So that's been really great. I think that we need to, we really haven't had a lot of time to talk about the disproportionate effect on vulnerable and marginalized populations, particularly people of color. You know, we are a poor state, we are a rural state, and we don't have Medicaid expansion. And people not having primary care and adequate access to the kinds of prevention treatments, prevention modalities that prevent the comorbidities that make SARS-CoV so bad for them, that's what's going to kill us. So, so I think refusing to address the long-term, medium-term healthcare needs of our most vulnerable citizens is the biggest lesson by far. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for all of the time that you are putting into um, helping us fight this virus. I appreciate it, John. Keep up the good work, and thank you. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Dr. Jean Morazzo for her time, and thank you to all of you who are out there doing your part and wearing your masks. I've got good news and I've got bad news. The bad news, this is the final episode of season two of The Reckon Interview. The good news, we'll be back in August with season three, and we're going to spend this season exploring the ins and outs of the 2020 elections in the South. National pundits can barely get our names right down here, so we're going to be having direct conversations with the people on the ground who understand this place better than anybody else. You're not going to want to miss it. I couldn't have made this season without Abby Gibson and Steph Colburn at Edit Audio. Abby produced and edited this episode and the rest of the season. So a quick thanks to her for turning these home office recordings into studio quality sound. If you like this season, please leave us a review and share the show with your friends so they can catch up before season three. And thanks again for reckoning with us.